All right, huge thank you to Shah for coming back. Her part one, it's got 60,000 views if you consider audio and YouTube. And huge thank you as well to all of you who reached out to her, supported her. Some of the story was extremely harrowing. Many people have followed on Instagram. All of Shah's links are in the description box below this video. Also, I've got a series of books coming out. Sit Downs with Gangsters, Sit Downs with Female Gangsters. And it looks like Shah is going to be in Sit Downs with Female Gangsters. So that's to look forward to as well. All the Jen's links will be down there. And because it's going to have a graphic warning content, this podcast, and as in part one, I have to ask Shah, do you wave your anonymity? Yes. Okay, thank you. And we're going to go over some stories in more detail, and we've got some new stories as well. And let's just go back to the very beginning then with the labor. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so I was my mum's third child, and um, she was in labor for 37 hours, which was, you know, horrendous. Um, she, She used to say how, you know, she would never have of you know gone through that if she knew that what she was facing pain wise and um and then when I was born um my hearts they took me away straight away they had to cut her from the back to get me out they cut her all the way around and they took her took me from the back and um and then I was taken away and my heart stopped beating for about two minutes and she heard um we've lost her um, so immediately, of course, thought that that was it and that I'd died. Um, and then they brought me back to life. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard of a birth where the child comes out the back of someone. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. I don't know that many details, but she was always very truthful about these stories of ours. And, um, and yeah, it was, yeah, it was pretty horrific. Um, yeah. And they, and she was, wounded you know very wounded and psychologically as well I think that must have been um a tremendously traumatic experience for her but was it also a miracle that you'd survived those two minutes for her I do like to say I'm a miracle (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that it yeah for sure if you heard we've lost her and a heart-stopping beating for two minutes is quite a long time so yeah it was I was very lucky to have been brought brought back to life and to be able to live yeah for sure um and I also believe that our birth story is you know a huge part of our blueprint and um what then unfolds within our life journey as well and the trauma that we experience as we go through um being conceived and as we go through the being in our our mum's womb and then the experience of our birth I think is definitely at the core of our our deep you know wounds yeah do you think that extreme up and down at birth was a trajectory then that would continue throughout your life I would say it's the most prominent um element of trauma that resides within me that I that I feel deeply for sure yeah and this has taken a lot of work to get here to where I know this now I've worked with a therapist every single week for a few a good few years now I've I've worked with a shamanic practitioner um I've done my own um you know internal work and I've figured out that my deep feelings of separation when they are surfaced 
definitely the the root cause of that would be my birth story for sure because you're so young though at that point and your memory of it i don't i don't think you would have a memory of it is it because you were told the story repetitively or is something? that when the trauma so and there's this is ver- it's a very complex um story this one because there's my mum when we grew up you uh, because you know, in part one, I explained about my biological father leaving uh, around the, my first birthday on that week. And so he wasn't a part of my life for a very long time. And so she used to tell me the story and this, and it was to make me feel better. That was her intention. And the story was, I never wanted you, but he did. And when I fell pregnant, he rang everybody and said, we're pregnant, we're pregnant. It was him that wanted me, but those words unfortunately um I didn't want you have you know have had their imprint as well I will you know always forever be grateful to my mum she was the very very best mum and and there's there is nothing there's no one quite like her for sure um but we are a trauma-informed um, generation now if we do the work and I have done the work and continue to do the work and yes those words have stayed mm-hmm. but I also feel that there is um, senses outside of our physical body that have a deep knowing and a deep memory about something that we went through yeah and do you not believe those traumatic words from your mum was you know, obviously single back to the traumatic experience you had giving birth to you that yeah. might have led on to, did she go on to uh, postnatal depression or anything of that sort? Um, I, I expect so. I expect there was some, yeah, I expect there was some postnatal depression. I don't remember her talking to me too much about that, just about the birth itself, you know, but then immediately after fell in love with me. In fact, I was I was called Jamie for for about three weeks when I was born because she was convinced I was a boy and wanted a boy. She'd had two girls and that was it. She Everything was powder blue. Um, And so then I was born and it was, oh, oh, she's a boy. And so um, because I had a different birth dad to my two sisters, um, and back then it was, you know, quite a traditional era, I suppose. People illuminated to her that it might have isolated me having such a different name because my sisters both had very regal and English names. And then I was called Jamie, which is, of course, a, you know, a gender neutral name in um, society, in the society's eye. But then it got changed to, um, yeah, Charlotte. But I, everybody calls me Shah apart from her. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the next story on the list, we go on to primary school. And we were, we were talking earlier before we started filming about how tough it is in school and bullying and what kids say to one another sometimes has a long lasting effect. And what, especially you can be too tall, too thin and too flat chested, you mentioned. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, the flat chested one was a, was a very big deal for some reason everybody was so obsessive about um, but that's in primary school here yeah it was in primary school my my I've got such a vivid memory I could probably take you to the chair that I was sat in in the classroom if I was navigated there to where I was sat when this was said to me and I, it was a mufty day and I'd worn a skirt and my mum would never have allowed me to walk out the house with a skirt long you know shorter than sort of knee length or whatever at that age 
and um I got called Tart Attack and I, she and and I remember the girl's name and everything. I won't know. <laughs> I won't call her out. Um pointed at me and said Tart Attack and and then everybody roared with laughter and that was it. I was Tart Attack for wearing a skirt. So obviously Art Attack was popular at the time. It. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> exactly. But, I can't believe that cuz primary school, I mean the, the oldest you are there is 11. So I mean, go, going back to sort of too tall, too thin, too flat chested, you hardly developed by the age of 11 and you're getting bullied for your physical appearance. I, yeah, I was a very late a de- de- developer, I suppose. There's no late or early now, but um, there seemed to be many of my um, peers that were, you know, developing breasts and going through puberty and starting their periods earlier than me. And... Um, and you got bullied if you had a flat chest and you know it was and and I was thin and and that was a um a target as well so yeah you can be thin fat or anything back then what was your very first memory of in your entire life in my entire life this is a really interesting question (laughs) and it fascinates me because I have an answer and I was two years old and I'm in um and there's nothing major that happened it's just a memory and I'm in a crib and we're in Lanzarote it's our first holiday and I can remember banging the um handle of a a a cupboard that I was (laughs) sat in but it's bizarre to me that I can think back that long and then after that it would be um school memories definitely primary school and growing up in this little cul-de-sac where the neighbors were friends and um there was children that played together and we had a den and tree houses and um we grew up very close to our cousins um my mum had a best friend who had children and so we well we grew up playing outside (laughs) that's what I was going to ask is what was your friendship group like back in when well, the I, first one you can remember. So um, I had a really good best friend who was a neighbor when I was growing up, and that was really nice. Um, and then at school, I was very much um, an outsider and would be picked as and when people felt like being friends with me. My first memory of feeling um, kind of always the friend that wanted to be friends with other people rather than them being friends with me and there's two girls and we and it, and it, I think it must have been year four so you're about eight years old I think in year four and um we used to change who would be the best friend and who would be the second best friend and this would change either halfway through the day or every couple <laughs> of days and one day they both chose me and said I want to be your we want to be your best friends and I said you know, you're great. And then all of a sudden, within an instant, they turned around and said, actually, we've changed our mind. And both of them turned their back on me. And I remember walking up to the teacher in floods of tears. I was devastated. But this was an ongoing pattern, um, even through secondary school. There was some very cool groups of people. And then there were some very close friends um, who were perhaps better for me as friends. But because I was a bit floaty, I yeah, it was never... it never appeared that people wanted to be my friend it was always me um sort of chasing and searching um but I'm grateful for for that now because now I believe that that's because I was questioning 
existence and life mm. a little bit more perhaps mm. you know I was very rebellious at school I hated my teachers I hated school I hated subjects I was horrible to my teachers was constantly um being kicked out of classes and yeah if you could pinpoint a moment in your life that, that you could change that would have changed how you would have acted in school what would you say that was um probably liked myself a little bit more and had a bit more confidence to 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 stand my ground but also been kinder when I was yeah through the pain that I'd received through primary school I wish I'd transcended that pain into kindness but instead I became a bit of a bully in secondary school and, and rather liked the idea of having that power over somebody mm. so by 14 clubbing partying is this self-medication for trauma or what of course. I think I just I I just was I was seeking a high from a very young age I was seeking euphoria from a very young age from a very young age I questioned surely this cannot be it go to school this awful school that I hated so much to then go home and do homework to then at the weekends help my mum with chores and go to B&Q on a Sunday because she needed a screw for this. You know, it was just so boring to me. <laughs> mundane and, life. <laughs> yeah, it was very mundane. And I'm not okay with mundane life now either. You know, I still, I, you know, I still seek euphoria. <laughs> my friends will laugh watching this because they know all too well what I'm like. And that's, of course, in, in a variety of different ways now. Back then was very much alcohol was... Um, available I had a friend in particular who was a couple of years older than me and it was two weeks before my 14th birthday that I got into my first nightclub and that was me done every single weekend I was clubbing for the rest of my foreseeable days um, flirting with bouncers that were god knows how old how old than me it was pretty dangerous I was putting myself at risk quite a lot of the time Um, and you know smoking cigarettes and yeah, I hadn't tapped into drugs yet, but I was drinking and drink drive, you know, but being in the car with people that were drink driving and all of that, you know. I think, mm. I mean, how old are you now? I'm 36. I was going to say, with similar age, I was thinking, this sounds like my fucking child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not really out of smoking. I'm not encouraging that on any children, but... No, no it's not it out of the norm. It, it was pretty normal for me and my yeah. friends to go get drunk from sort of 14, 15 years old, try getting into clubs, which nine times out of 10 you could back then, no yeah. ID necessary. Yeah. And yeah, smoking, drinking, truanting, uh, getting in people's cars while they were fucking drunk or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, it's such a great time. Though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thinking about it now. Um, yeah, it was. It was, but yeah, it was the norm back then, to be honest. Everybody was um, doing that and school wasn't fun for me. I wasn't studying. I wasn't doing... Thing. I was in isolation a lot at school and, and so as soon as the weekend hit so I wanted to, to go out with my older friends. What were you studying at sixth form before you got expelled? Um, dance, drama, performing arts, yeah. Um, I think I lasted about six weeks um, and then I swore at my teacher and they asked me to leave, yeah which I was quite pleased about. I think I manifested that one myself. I didn't want to go to sixth form. Um, I was in a relationship, my first love at the time, and adored him and and had such an amazing big friendship group for the first time in my life. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And they were all at this sixth form. So 
um, I went and I, you know, my mum asked me to give it a try. And so I did. My sisters were very academic, so they went on to do college and uni. And I was, yeah, tested my mum's patience a little bit with my want to be on the stage instead. And what brought about your big depression then at this such young age? So I think that my answer would be different back then to what it is now. But back then I was... Um, a lot. I was lost, and um, my mum's my mum's um, rule was that either you were in education or you had a um, a, a job. And so, when I got kicked out of um, sixth form, I went and got a job doing retail in a boring clothes shop, and and that is a recipe. Reci- oh, it was just some rubbish one called Spira in um in Bournemouth it was this tiny little one and what, what did we used to sell we used to sell Playboy um, oh Playboy was massive we did yeah <laughs> <Playboy>. <laughs> and like I think it was Hackett or something like that you know <laughs> yeah things like that it was um one of those little clothing shops and and I was so bored and so yeah it was a recipe for depression do it you know having that kind of rule of lifestyle and so um went to the doctors and so many people will have heard these words before that I'm going to give you this antidepressant because it will balance out the imbalance of chemicals in your brain and that is what a GP says when they hand over antidepressants for anxiety and depression and so at the young age of I think maybe 16 near, just near touching 17 I was put on antidepressants and I was on them for 15 years. When you say GP, do you mean dealer for Big Pharma? Yeah, thank you. I didn't know whether I was how how deep I was allowed to go with that. That's probably as deep as we could go. That would be like another five-hour podcast. Don't even get me started. <laughs> yeah, I've lost half my family oh, yeah. to it. So I'm yeah I'm, a, I'm yeah very big resistance to Big Pharma. So the modelling then, we went into that in great yeah, detail so in part one. So viewers, if you've not seen part one, we'll show it after this. So stay tuned for the end of part two. We'll add it to it. Um, all the link is in the description box as well. But then there's a bizarre story about meeting your dad, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, so met him for the first time a couple of weeks before my 18th birthday. My um, boyfriend at the time and I went to his house and met him and his I don't know, sixth wife or something. I tend to call him Henry VIII. I think he had that many different <laughs> wives. I don't even know my original surname or because he changed it that many times um, due to fraudulent behaviour. Um, I believe that the night that I was born, he gambled away a deposit of a house that my mum had saved. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, it was really, really terrible behaviour towards... Um, <sighs> his approach with women and what he was using them for and what he was using marriage for and things like that. But yes, yeah, so we met this um, much younger um, girlfriend of his and she was really nice. Actually, we built quite a nice relationship, her and I. And I, yeah, we had quite a good connection at times. Um, um, and as I said in part one, they were ve- they were both very um, sort of high fashion Easter's, you know, London, loved the parties, loved the drugs, had a very quirky house um, and um, tried to help me in editorial modelling and, you know, tried to help me with all of that stuff. Um, and then the second time around, I met him and he took me to a nightclub and he held my hand and um, had very peculiar behaviour. Um, 
towards me which was very questionable but I was in such a vulnerable place and sort of part of me was eager to you know know you know know who he was and and um yeah naive as well naivety got in the way anyway we did have um a relationship as a family for a few years um we went to parties we stayed at his their home and we did drugs together on numerous occasions um you know was that was that the first time you did the white was it with him no it's he gave me my first pill my dad gave me my first pill but I'd I think I'd already tried but not a lot. I I was kind of just getting into it. We're going to call it the white for the purpose of this. Oh, I'm gonna, sorry, sorry. I'm going to call the other thing. We're going to call the other thing green as well. Green. I know you yeah. literally just said that to me, and I didn't clock. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sorry. There's white, there's green, and there's brown in this world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying. Pills. Oh, pills. <laughs> Tablets. <laughs> um, yeah, so we ended up doing a lot of that. Yeah, a yeah. lot of that over time together. And that got... Would you say he was just treating you as a mate? It was... Yeah, it was very bizarre. I don't think that he... I don't think that he wanted to take the role and to finally accept that he had to be a father figure, really... And so I think that he tried to just embrace the role of the cool dad that you could do drugs with. Um, Does Tommy's mum in Power come to mind? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you watch Power on Netflix? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, His mum uh, comes over, she's like, where's the white? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. yeah, that's it, yeah. And sure. we're having a discussion about, would we see that as a cool mum? Yeah. And I was like, no. No, like, my... I would say my mum was a cool mum because she was approachable just about about just about anything. Um, unfortunately, there was a, a a lack of informing and communication about things um, about being trauma informed. But like I've said, you know, we're a different generation now, so there's a lot of forgiveness around that, or there's a lot of anger and pain towards that as well. But um, you know, you work, we work through it and we move, but. Yeah, he he thought it was a cool dad, but it's not, it's not a cool dad thing to do on a regular basis or any basis, really. It, uh, if it was uh, Leaf, then yeah, you know. Who introduced you to the white then? Um, a friend of mine did that I was living with um, in a house when I was about 18. She did it, and one night I went to London with her and tried it. But then shortly after that, the majority that I was doing was with him, my dad, yeah. Um, and then I, and then I was doing the pageants as well. And then I was going out with my friends and, um, and doing it then. And whose well. idea was it to start at the strip clubs? Yeah. How did you go from pageants to strip club? Uh, yeah. Um, my friend had, was pole dancing for fitness and then she started in a strip club at the time, told me about it and I was, like yeah take me with you I want to go and make this money at the weekend I'm bored of this I had a childminding business at the time and I just I didn't want to do that I didn't know what I wanted to do it uh, I was told time and time again it was too late to be a model it was too late to be a dancer too late to be a singer blah 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 and so I was like let's go and make some money dancing on a pole yeah I always found it really erotic and um, quite artistic to watch pole dancers yeah, I'm um 
I have a huge heart for my place in like old school strippers um, mm-hmm. because it's not the same these days. The sex work industry is very, very different. And a, a lot of um, sex workers just haven't got a clue what it was like back then. And of course, I'm a professional pole dancer as well. I had my own pole school for nearly seven years and I still train now. Um but there's nothing quite like watching an old school stripper mm-hmm. dance on stage and do her thing. It's really mesmerizing. And I've heard that word many a times myself and said it many a time myself to other dancers. Yeah. It was many years ago. I think it, it would have been before YouTube maybe where they had competitions of dancers, pole dancers. And I don't know, there's something about it. I was like, that takes some absolute strength to get on that pole and it's I don't know it's fascinating and these days it doesn't seem like that when you go in a strip club it is very seedy and the thing is these days unfortunately it's so much harder to make money in a strip club back then you could make a grand on a weeknight and up to five grand on a on, on a week weekend and almost guarantee that you know at the time I was too busy taking drugs and drinking I'm not speaking for myself <laughs> I'm speaking for uh, the general, I ended up making a lot of money towards the end of, um, well, I don't like to say the end of my stripping career, but towards the end, the last stint that I did in strip clubs. But yeah, back then it was a lot easier. And so it was probably a lot more laid back. Now it is, you've got to get in there, girl, because you do not know how many guys are walking through that door and you have to, yeah. But there's a lot of, a lot of talent and a lot of strippers now are doing more pole dancing classes or teaching themselves I'm a self-taught taught pole dancer I have only ever had two lessons in my life and the rest of it like like school I don't want to be told what to do I'll do it myself and I went on and I trained and I trained and I trained and I self-taught myself to this level but you know pole dancers have just um toured with well they're on tour with Snoop Dogg at the moment there's um pole dancers that are yeah touring with Snoop Dogg and getting this platform and these opportunities to show what is an art what is a talent what is 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 takes no more um no less training than a gymnast and it will hopefully one day be an Olympic sport I yeah I I hope it it is and in your opinion how did it go from you know girls earning five grand a weekend so one of my friends is an ex-pole dancer and she said you were lucky to earn 20 pounds some evenings Uh, how did it jump from that sort of money to to practically you know less than working at Tesco's there is still money to be made in a strip club it is dependent on a variety of things and that is such as location um the time of the year, whether it is payday, whether the guys have got strip club etiquette, um, whether, you know, whether they're regulars. There's so many different elements to it that there is still grands and grands to be made in strip clubs. For sure there is. My girls are making making that money. Um, um, but unfortunately, it's just not as easy. So, you, you know... Um, <laughs> capitalism I suppose like you know (laughs) and and the world and the internet of course coming you know the rise of being of cam girls and only fans um it depends what type of experience a customer wants really um and a lot of um a lot of escorts work from strip clubs as well and so yeah just 
changes, but people are struggling, aren't they? These yeah. days, they are. It's mostly men watching these videos. I'm trying to boost your socials now, Sha. Um, <laughs> do you post pictures mind. of your pole dancing on any of your yes. socials? Yes, <laughs> regularly. Oh. Which one? Which ones? So you've got <laughs> Jessica Love UK. And then you've got, um, and then I have OnlyFans. I have my cam sites. I do a lot of private work because um, these cam sites are taking 45% off the girls, you know. I don't like handing my money over. I don't need to hand my money over. On a night, if I'd earned two grand in a strip club, I would then have to go and hand over hundreds of pounds to my manager at the end of my night. I've done enough of that now. So yeah, if they contacted me, contact me privately, a hundred percent of their money goes to me. And yes, there's lots and lots of pictures and videos to be seen. And Shah's Instagram link is in the description box below this video. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask about your OnlyFans. Sorry, I didn't realise you did it. I, I was doing it up until that happened. And <laughs> by then, it, you know, it's there's been a lot announced. Of money to be made. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's what people keep saying. Yeah. But, um, no, I mean, how did how do you find OnlyFans? Um, it's not for me, really. It's not my preferred method. Um, I'm a communicator. I like just come let's have a call or or you can have a video or something like that but I I have done a lot of this work now for a long long time and so my focus and my energy is now channeled into my other business and so that's why it's not not for me I will I'm it's never gonna turn, turn down it's just my energy needs needs to be in alignment and so yeah it's there and it's available and you know it if it's requested then it's given when yeah. you say other business yoga meditation yeah so, so yeah my my healing based business um definitely um has my dedication now but like I said I've got regular calls coming in each day still from my customers which is lovely um and so I'm, you know, I'm never going to not be a sex worker, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I'll... I mean, there's some serious money involved, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. Why would I turn that down? But what I would like to do is have the um, option to turn it down for like calls that I don't like now. I'll tell them to go themselves <laughs> rather than having to entertain these people that we spoke about in part one and it, you know, it's just darker and darker and darker. And my friend said to me yesterday, I'm kind of relieved that you're saying this because um, it's getting really dark on there. And she's noticing that strip clubs are now a lot lighter than the camp because you're, they're behind the screen. They feel very safe and they will say it straight away now. Even from the time that we last filmed to now, it's there's a new level of they just come straight on and they just come straight out with it and they don't even care. And if you're, because of money, because they don't have the money or the time or the space to be delicate or vulnerable and they know they're safe, they know there's no repercussions whatsoever. Um, and so now I'd like to be able to say, no, thanks, I'm all, I'm all right, I don't need your money. <laughs> what type of, because I'm um, going back to, just for the viewers for the previous podcast, what type of clientele would you say fall into that category? Um, so, uh, you know, uh, illegal based requests such as um asking for um inappropriate very young children um age play they call it um 
race play as well. Um, but yeah, I would say age play is definitely at the top of the top of the list. <laughs> really? The, yeah. yeah, it was, and it's, and it's becoming very, um, normal to receive a call. And it will be typical, you know, it'll be like a, a couple of really quiet days and you, you're a bit skint and you kind of need to pay some bills. And then, you know, you'll be saying to your friend, oh, Cam's crap today, there's no calls. And then all of a sudden you will get two calls and those two calls will both be. Oh, and it's just so, it's so deflating because when I love this work, I really love it. You know, I've had some really nice customers. I've had a giggle, I've had a lot of fun. I, I, um, I can express myself, you know, I can dance or I can show my body that I work bloody hard <laughs> for. Um, but the times that that happen, I just think, oh, this is just so dark and I just don't want to do this. How do you deal with them? Would you, do you literally say to him, look, do you have a fucking daughter, mate? No. <laughs> That's what I'd say. Direct him. I'd be like, do you have children? I have like, done that. I have seriously, done that. Mate. So I yeah. can't even tell you like how many stories there are, but there's this, but there's even the flip side of it as well of not flip sides. There's another aspect to it. And that is, for instance, I had this one customer and he was a regular client. He would call me privately on my WhatsApp and we would do a video call, but his kids would be coming home in the house when he was sniffed up off his nut shoving snooker cubes up his bum in the in the garage and then running around with his willy hanging out running around the house and the kids are literally just walking in with their mum and he's and what really scares me is that these people have got children in their care what aggravates me to my core is people that look down on people that We'll smoke a bit of puff to alleviate some stress and bring them into a nice place of calm for the rest of their evening, but may have children in bed or something like that. But my God, have a glass of wine and a line, you're fine. It's not that their nose is not turned down at all whatsoever. Are you, you know, ha- these people are drinking and drinking and drinking and then they've got, they've got piles of white hidden away in the garage and they've got children in their care you really don't worry about the kids yeah so so i do worry about the children and i worry about them doing things like being in their bed whilst they're playing with themselves and stuff like that like oh i guess i've never thought of it like that yeah yeah this happened numerous times so shah you mentioned you know starting out in the strip clubs and stuff and it, for a lot of young people, it starts out glamorous at first. Did you notice any darker aspects of it in your early years? In my early years, yeah, um, yeah. I was I was drinking and doing drugs at the wheel on the way to the strip club, <laughs> through the way to work, and then drinking and doing drugs through the night and seeing other girls doing drugs. Some nights we we would just drink, but enormous amounts I would spend more money than I earned some nights on alcohol yeah and they would always say you know don't buy your own drinks let customers buy them for you but I think you know I've struggled with addiction my whole entire life and so these are the you know the prominent like beginner features of what the journey was to come and yeah there was a lot of drinking a lot of 
darkness, like CD managers and um, lots of, you know, lots of sex going on on with, you know, security and staff and the girls and things like that. Yeah. Because you were, were you banned from giving uh, clients or like customers your number one of my friends says you used to sneak it in the cigarette packet. <laughs> That's a good show. <laughs> <laughs> Tips. That's a good like, one. Because we banned from, um, obviously them touching you inappropriately and obviously handing out your number to then go meet them later on. Um, depending on what club you worked in, depended on how, um, solid these rules were and or whether they were flexible rules or depending on how the manager was or something like that so yeah the general rule was that you were not allowed to exchange numbers with any customers and that it they were no contact clubs that was the the rule those were the legal rules in all of the clubs but it definitely depended on which club you were in or it does depend on which club you work for what the manager is like whether there is cameras whether they are regulated um on a regular basis whether there's cops that come in um but generally you're not allowed to touch customers and you're not allowed to give your number out and you said you were you're quite drunk during you know some of the evenings there did you ever get so out of hand on the stage that you were unable to dance Oh God, yeah. <laughs> um, one night, um, <laughs> I didn't even make it on stage. One night, I got I got um, sacked. I think that night because I'd done. Um, I don't know how to say this without saying the substance. <laughs> what colour is it? Pink crystals. <laughs> I'd taken two um, bombs of those it's in the it. afternoon. Call it Himalayan rock salt. Yeah, that's it. I'd taken two bombs of Himalayan rock salt at 2pm in the afternoon. Then I'd um, done a whole gram of Charlie at whilst I was getting ready and doing my makeup, all whilst drinking. And so by the time we stepped into the changing rooms to get ready, we were late. And so when you were late back then, you had to go out on promo, which meant that you needed to go and wander the streets with flyers in all dolled up. Well, I came up as soon as I walked into the changing rooms on these two bombs that I'd done hours ago and I was paralytic and I was puking all over the change rooms in the bin everything was on my ass absolutely on my ass um and so I had to so I, he he told me to go the the manager at the time and then I just had to go home so I got my sister to pick me up and then there's other nights where I've been yeah I've been bang on it and had to get on stage <laughs> it's not a nice experience sometimes but then other times you you know you have a few drinks and you're great on stage yeah I could, I've never I don't think I've ever done a terrible stage show to be honest so thank goodness <laughs> why do you think so many women in that industry do take substances to work um so first of all, you're really nervous because you're going to be in underwear. And so I would say that would be one of the first reasons to have a drink. Um, and then, of course, you have the aspect that you are in a party environment 
And so it takes some discipline to not drink for um, a lot of people. When you're in a party environment, you do perhaps drink. Maybe you, you, you're not an alcoholic or anything, but you do, you are a drinker. Then you're in a party environment. Everybody is around you drinking, but you're not drinking. And so there's that aspect of it. Um, and then there are, lots of their external stresses and things like that and so they come to work which happens to be a bar and so they'll have a drink um yeah there's loads of different reasons why people drink in this job do you think traumatized women are attracted to the industry um what a massive question there are so many different reasons for different types of people with different backgrounds to come into this industry. My reasons as a privileged white person might be different to a person of color or um, someone of lower poverty. Um, yeah, there, there just might be different answers depending on who you would ask for that question. Do you think there's but a higher incidence though of people with trauma I going would, into the industry? Yeah, there is. Um, and a lot of that trauma is from capitalism forcing us into jobs like this. Um, yeah, so I would say that would be a huge um, element to consider when you say capitalism you need the pressure to make a lot of money and have nice things yeah and i mean also the pressure of fending for ourselves and you know survival and meeting our basic needs um and whether or not you are in a position to have access to meet those basic needs and whether you have access to uh, a job you know whether you have access to employment uh, to education rather to then be able to get a job in this world there's so many different um yeah there's so many different reasons why capitalism screws us and then forces us into doing jobs that perhaps weren't really our dream job and I feel it's a generational thing as well we've gone from a very old school generation where women stayed at home and didn't go to work to where we actually have to go out and earn money now and uh, it's a hot, this is a tough subject to get onto but um <laughs> don't bring out the feminist in me don't yeah. do it Jen don't do See? it <laughs> so, so Shah why did you move to New Zealand <laughs> No, I want to talk about patriarchy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> why, why women are no longer kept at the oven. But <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask about the arrest of theft. Was that your first arrest? Yeah, it was. I was 21 years old. I was going to my friend's birthday party. So all my friends were there. It was so embarrassing. And my friend and I saw a wallet on the side of this bar and decided to whip it. And we did, and we took it into the toilets, and it had three hundred pounds in it. So we we were delighted, stuffed up, <laughs> stuffed our bras with cash, and threw the um, wallet in the bin. And then um, the person who wallet what it was, of course, told the manager and was like, "Where's my wallet? It was on the sides." And they looked at the CCTV and saw us taking the wallet, got arrested. I went home that night. I hope you are enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Athletic Greens. As many of you know, I've recently had shingles. My immune system was down and I'm bouncing back, taking AG1 in the morning. 
It's one scoop of powder mixed once a day with water and Jen and I are taking it before breakfast daily. There's so many supplements on offer these days but AG1 was developed with ease in mind. It's healthy, you can fit it into your lifestyle and you don't have to do a lot. Jen said AG1 is helping her with her hurt and skin and my eyebrows are looking quite luscious already. No need to take a bunch of different stuff when you can just mix one scoop of powder in water once a day. AG1 has been part of millions of mornings since 2010. AG1 gives you increased energy and mood support. Thanks to AG1's formula, I'm able to cover all of my nutritional bases every day. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Check it out. Link is in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Athletic Greens. I hope it helps you as much as it's helped me and Jen. And it happened to have been one of my mum's mortgage clients. No. (laughs) She was fuming. And he was also a local radio presenter as well. And so he blasted it over the local Bournemouth radio station. Rightly so as well. I would have in his position. Yeah. Um, But I was very young and silly. And what were your other arrests? Um, Then... So I wasn't arrested after that for a little while until I was about, I think I was 28, 29, and I got arrested three times, possession, criminal damage, criminal assault, possession, possession. Let's keep it in order, though. Let's do New Zealand next. Yeah, New Zealand, um, so... We grew up with a very close friend, um, my godmother's daughter, who is my eldest sister's age. Um, they were two very, very best friends and she moved to New Zealand. And so my sister followed and moved out there. And then my sister's friend was getting married. And so we all, all flew over there for the wedding and I stayed. I decided to stay. I didn't live there for longer than a few months. Um, but, um, we were in the south of the North Island in Wellington. And then I decided to move up to a very small place called Hara up in Taranaki, which is the west coast of the North Island. We also visited the South Island as well. It's paradise, New Zealand, absolute paradise. It's like such a natural, untouched country. It's really gorgeous. And so, yeah, I lived with this family as um, a childminder, a living childminder over in New Zealand. Was that an anticlimax? <laughs> what, living as a childminder? Just Compared going from this like... fast-paced party life and now you're a childminder in New Zealand. That must have... I mean, was it a welcome respite or was it... <laughs> no, that's... Was the excitement gone? That's such a good... That's such a good way to put it and I've never even... Like, I've yeah. never even <laughs> thought of it like that. But yeah, probably... Definitely lost my high definitely and then became depressed again because I'd put myself in that position again and so even though now of course if I knew then what I know now about seeking highs I I would have been in the perfect place to have you know practiced so much amazing 
highs from from natural highs but no it was it was depressing just going from party party to then being a childminder in the middle of nowhere like anybody that knows New Zealand that hears that I moved to Howrah will be like I promise you they'll be like what the hell were you doing in Howrah <laughs> there's about 50 people they all know everybody knows everybody it was the most random place to live and were you still drinking and doing drugs while you were over there or did you have a, a welcome break I, 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 it was a forced break. That's the trouble. When I moved to New Zealand, I had no money whatsoever. I was so depressed. My mum got to the, because my mum had flown over for this wedding. She got to the point where she bought me a bag of, because I was so depressed and so miserable and, and angry. She would never have bought me any other substance ever. I know that for a fact, but it was a bit of, sorry, it was a bit of leaf. And so, yeah, eventually she said, will this make you happy? And I said, yes. <laughs> but then I moved to this place and I was, you know, I had nothing, had no money. I didn't know anybody to go and get anything off. So if a drink came around, I'd drink it. If a cigarette came around, I'd smoke it. Um, Could you take us through the day you first self-harmed? What was going through your thoughts that day? Um. I was back in I was back in Wellington um where the, my family was and they had all gone off for the day or something they'd gone on a trip and I'd just got to a place I think this might have been before actually I tried to I I moved and then I think the move was like a a choice that I wanted to make a choice to make to make myself feel better um yeah, I'd spent the whole day on my own and it was just so dreary and I was obviously withdrawing because I was smoking uh, green as and when I could and um, smoking nicotine a lot as well, which is, of course, really um, uh, addictive and had no money for anything. I had no purpose. I had no vision and no clarity whatsoever, no foundation to build anything upon and my family were very busy um and you know of course were supportive of me but I only had so much capacity for this um yeah but what brought you to that moment then did you where did you get the idea from of that I I had a friend who self-harmed regularly back in Bournemouth and so I knew about self-harming from her and was actually quite I don't know there was an aspect of jealousy almost I suppose towards the attention that it got her and so I just got so numb I got into a place of utter numbness and needed something big I needed to do something big and that was the big thing and so I pulled a knife out and started going at my arms did it release tension Yeah. yeah yeah as soon as I bled and this I've self timed numerous times since then as soon as I bleed and I feel like it's a you know a bad cut I'm I'm happy and did the people you were living with notice yeah they couldn't not unfortunately because they came home and my mum saw it first because I showed her and told her yeah why did you decide to show her and tell her I wanted attention like the the um the wisdom in me now will answer that because that was a child that needed attention and needed, yeah, the utmost attention that couldn't be provided because my was, mum was sharing herself with 
three other girls because the, this third girl was considered much like a child and you know she didn't get mom. the attention i got some support but there was some anger and some confusion towards me as well because of this attention seeking behavior and they just wanted me to just be okay and they seemed to find a lot of answers within their academic route and their employment route and those answers were not making me happy whatsoever and i i wasn't able to explore the answers that would perhaps make me happy because back then it was all about education and getting a job and that is how we get happy because then we get the money we might have to work hard in a job that we might not really like to get to where we want to be and that was the motto and and so the space to holding space for me was yeah hard work and so how long did you stay out there after? Not very long. I think I went to Taranaki probably for a, for a few weeks, maybe. And then I phoned. Good grief. I can't think of the times now where everything was. I think I'd or I think this might have been a little bit later. And then I went back to Spain. I think I went back to London. Did you have connections and in Spain? Then I went to Spain. Yeah, from where I lived there before. That's what's making me think now that New Zealand might have been a couple years later than 21 and that I'd already been to Spain. Oh, yeah, I'd already been for a short holiday. That was what it was. And then, I'd, and then I think I went back or something like that. I so you know. made the connections. I can't really the, remember. The I've made the connections with this yeah. guy who who I ended up eventually with um, and he was a um, manager of strippers and he used to provide the clubs with dancers and he used to run a house and he would rent rooms out to the girls and I'd met him already and then when I was in New Zealand I decided to go back to London where I was working and living above a strip club in London and then I eventually headed back to Spain to live there. And you started, did you start working in the strip clubs and swingers conventions? Yeah, so I was working in a strip club um, in Puerto Bonus in Spain. And then because of my, um, because of this guy's contacts, um, we would then get gigs. And one of the gigs was to perform at a swingers convention. Um, 500 couples rent out a whole hotel for the whole week and anything goes there's <laughs> numerous cool stories <laughs> oh yeah um and so we would perform dif- in different themed um costumes and d- different themes were each night and so everybody would dress up and we would perform and then we would be podium dancers and just crowd you know crowd lifters basically um and 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 then I would get different gigs from him, such as I think I I did a birthday strip tease for a prince or a prince's son one night um, out there, and I had a regular. Um, uh, do- I was a dominatrix for a couple of clients and stuff like that out in Spain. Yeah. So how did it feel jumping into a dominatrix's shoes? <laughs> I quite well it wasn't re- it wasn't as it wasn't regular and it wasn't hard dominatrix work so it was quite fun because um it was just doing things like squishing a guy's head between my legs and making him feel very 
um, inferior to me. I was quite pleased about that. (laughs) (laughs) Quite willing to take on that role. (laughs) So yeah, all of that. And that's so common now. I mean, it's like, you've got like 80% of your clientele on cam that want a, want someone that's a dom, Mm. maybe not, um, full blind dominatrix hard work, but yeah, there's an element of this, these guys that just want someone to tell them what to do and tell them that they're pathetic and that losers and blah, blah, blah. Have you seen the change in the sex trade over the years go from perhaps vanilla over to more fetish? Yeah, it's really normal now for people to have fetishes. It almost feels like guys feel that they need to have a kink now and that they need to have a fetish because there's so many married guys out there. I'm like, what is not happening? What are you not sharing within your sex life that's not getting fulfilled? And where does that need come from? And why don't you figure it out? You're in a marriage, you know, but there's not. They just are constantly seeking someone to... Um, explore their kinks with. So good, Which, hold on a second, this gives us an opportunity to plug James's <laughs> underground films. Two documentaries, one's available now, it's called Fifty Shades of Fetish on Amazon Prime. And the other one, which is coming soon, is going to be called How to Become a Dominatrix. Correct, yes. Starring? Myself and Mistress Cosby. I'm learning how to become a professional dominatrix. Amazing. I can't can't wait wait. to see this. (laughs) So, among other things, we're going to, what is it, a a, a fetish B&B. Amazing. (laughs) And I don't want to skip over this either. 500 swinging couples at Yeah, that's what I was going back to. What happens when they all start swinging? <laughs> is it like slugs What's the, the crowd room? control? There's some crowd control issues there. <laughs> there is no crowd control. It's all... <laughs> Anything goes. Anything goes. What? There was like this giant mechanical cock. Um, there's the big um, X-frame. I can't remember what they're called. Um, there's guys standing up against the wall getting... Um, Blow jobs says, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, what I'm not allowed to say. Um, anything, guys. And there's these rooms where there's a load of beds in there so they can just go in there and just play. Um, but there's lots of different toys, equipment, apparatus. Um, and then you've got in the daytime, it's just really funny just being around the pool in the day and everybody's naked and when they're doing their stuff on the sunbeds or whatever. Yeah, it's liberating, to be honest. <laughs> Um, are, they still, are they still going out of interest? Yeah, so this is a big organization. It's a very well-known organization and they do it all over Europe and there's global, uh, there's a global community as well. And you can sign up and register as a member of this community and then wow. events like this are, what? are offered. Out of interest, what percentage of the clients, um, the customers are male or, or female? Well, let's just start with male. Well, at swingers conventions, is yeah. This is, is it couples only or can singles go? I think singles can probably go, but it was around, I would say it was about half and a half, to be honest. Um, maybe a bit more male, but no, there was loads of women there, loads. And are, are there the standard rules that you can't touch unless invited or was there a bit There's, of problems It's a that? consensual based of event you know that is it and I wonder there's pro- there's probably things that you sign or you know just by being a member and just by part- taking part you are in an environment where consent is the deal basically so you just have to have that etiquette um 
that doesn't mean to say that there's not people in there with um, harmful intentions and and or who is a harmful person that already practices um, harmful behavior. But during that occasion, during those events, I you know I only ever saw and witnessed consensual activity. And on a naked bouncers. <laughs> no, there was no bouncers. No, no, no bouncers. No, not at this. No, it was so chill, honestly. So chill. Yeah, totally chill. Everybody's just there because they want to be. It's not, you know. Um, I expect there was hotel security. Yeah, there was probably hotel security, but generally everybody was just there to, for the same reason to have a good time, and it was very relaxed. What is it? Generally, heterosexual activity, or is there bisexuality as well? Oh yeah, I think there's lots of bisexuality. That's why I I have to be careful with my terminology when I do say there was male and there was more male than female there. I don't know what genders people were identifying with. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. but as a witness, that's yeah. Because you came out as bi around this time, didn't you? Yeah, I did actually. Just before I moved to Spain, <laughs> I was seeing this. Um, this is when I just first started stripping and I was hanging out with my friend who was a burlesque performer and we were hanging out at her gigs and after her gigs and I met this um, woman who worked behind a bar and immediately was attracted to her and I'd, I'd played around, I'd fooled around with girls before and and tapped into my bisexuality um, but never... Um, never been with someone publicly and so this was my first public girlfriend and I remember when we were seeing each other and it wasn't public I walked out the door and my mum said Charlotte have you got the gay bug (laughs) 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 because my sister had had relationships with um, females long lengthy relationships with females it was always welcomed in our home it doesn't matter as long as you were happy and they were treating you kindly then that was welcomed so it was okay my friends were so cool about it as well it was it was it always fascinates me how cool my friends are back then my friends some of them were different to my friends now but even um this I've been lucky enough to well I've been grateful to have friends that haven't blinked an eyelid doesn't matter who I say that I'm seeing or whatever they're like okay and then I'm like I did just say she and they're like, yeah, and I heard you. <laughs> yeah, they they really normalised it for me. So I was very grateful for that. And how long did that relationship last? Um, we mo- I moved out to Spain and then she moved out there and we broke up because we wanted different things. So not, not particularly long, a couple of, a few months really. But it was a nice relationship, healthy relationship. No, it wasn't particularly, it wasn't the healthiest of relationships because she was gay and I was bi and I, and she had quite a resistance towards, I think, straightness and bisexuality. I had long nails when I met her and her friends all laughed at me for having long nails and wanting to be with a woman, which now is, you know, I see as extremely harmful and awful to do that because there are very many lesbians and bisexual women out there that have got long nails and managed quite fine (laughs) through a sex life. But, um, and I dressed very feminine or what is classed as feminine. And all of a sudden within a couple of months, I was wearing boxers with baggy jeans. I'd shaved my hair. I didn't wear a bra. And that's all because I felt that I had to morph into society's version of 
being a le- being a lesbian and what, what a le- about a wit- lipstick le- lesbian isn't it pardon lipstick lesbian lipstick. is that what is that what we're called now so uh, i don't know but <laughs> yeah i so if you dressed quite quite uh, masculine it was this is just growing up known butch lesbian yeah if you dressed quite feminine it was lipstick oh lesbian. right yeah yeah that's what i would say so that's why i was confused i thought yeah. well, nails are great I know, but I it, unfortunately just that that group of people when were unfortunately not not that um, expansive with their mindset. So, and this was a long time ago, a really long time ago. It's very different now, you know. I just I just however I want to, and I'm still very much attracted to females, males, whoever. I'm just attracted to whoever. The inner person. Yeah. There we go. And then you went over to Candyman number one. <laughs> Sorry. Candyman. Candy Man. That is amazing. I was thinking, <laughs> hmm, which one is he talking about? <laughs> um, this was just actually before... Who are you talking about? The dealer. Number one. Oh, dealer number one was... Yeah, he was in Spain. Yeah, lived lived with him, got with him. How did you meet? He was my manager, my dance manager. He was the guy that ran the house. Oh, and I remember hearing yeah, about him in he, your previous podcast. So he was 20 years older, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. And yeah. So I was 23, he was 43 A at Native American, if I remember right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And... um yeah, he he I he did loads of dodgy stuff that I didn't have a clue about also as well. There was lots of secrets, lots of lies, um and lots of things that were hidden, but uh generally he 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 dealed a lot of smoke, some other stuff, the GBH, is that what it's called? Yeah. 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 GHB. 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 That's the one, GBH. Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that one. <laughs> um, Do you know yeah. how, he, how your boyfriend then got onto the scene of the swinging? He was an original original Dream, Dream Boys member. Oh, wow. So, you know, the original Dream Boys, he was one of them. He was famous in Paris and stuff like that, like years and years ago. He was quite well known. Um and so that's how he got into sex work himself. He was a male escort. He would he used to go out with a bag one night full of toys and stuff. And then he would come home and I would not ask questions. And that was it. Uh, it's bizarre to me to think about m- my mentality then because I wouldn't now be with someone that was an escort. But Would you say you, while you were with him, you lived a glamorous lifestyle? No, not glamour. No, not really. I mean, Porta Benus was on our doorstep. Glamour was on our doorstep. If we wanted to, a table at a club, we would get a table at a club. We knew everybody in Porta Benus. And so at the time, it was, that was like our community. So, but we were, I don't know, we were much more like, you know, we used to go to waterfalls or we'd go to the beach for the day and we'd smoke a lot of smoke and, yeah, it wasn't very, I went from being a very materialistic person when I lived in Bournemouth and then when I moved to Spain, I became less and less materialistic and much more in tune with nature and the natural side of living. Because, yeah, in your previous podcast, you mentioned that you left a hippie when you left quite suddenly. Uh, pretty much, yeah. I mean, they <laughs> they certainly have a bit of my heart because 
I left everything there. And I mean, thousands and thousands of pounds worth of high fashion clothes, shoes, accessories. And I believe he sold all of my stuff, um, which I just let go or just, yeah, accepted really. And have you seen him since? No, thank goodness. I'm, there's still some lingering, not fear, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to come across him again. No. And that's, you returned back to the UK. Yeah. I came back to, um, London. I went to Newquay, lived in Newquay for a few months, worked in a strip club down there, had a lot of fun, met someone who lived in Surrey, which is why then when I moved back to London, I then moved to Surrey eventually. So we're going to get on to the next subjects on the list. Um, your first abortion. Yeah. So, and that was with this guy that I moved to Surrey with. Um, we were very in love from the word go. I'm very grateful for this relationship because, um, it was a normal, healthy relationship and showed me that there are normal, healthy guys out there. <laughs> and so we had a great relationship. Um, and I, I, and then I fell pregnant and, we umdenard and umdenard and it was by far the most difficult decision I've ever had to make in my whole entire life and I very much wanted the baby but he very much wasn't ready or in a position and he said to me this has made me fit this has made me think that one day I would like this with you and because of those words I then had an abortion only unfortunately for him to break up with me not a million miles away of that so it was a shame that I took his words for gospel um it was sad it was very very sad yeah you showed you showed you found him in a sex a video of him in a sex dungeon is that the one no that's my dad oh I've confabulated those two. Sadly, that wasn't my ex-boyfriend. Sadly, that was dad. (laughs) Well, so yeah, you ended contact with your biological father. Yeah, I did. I was 25 years old. The um, meetings and the experiences had gotten quite seedy in the past. And then his, his wife that he was with at the time that I had a relationship with him and him broke up. And so he was seeing a new um, woman, again, a bit younger than him. He liked that. He liked them looking young. He liked them being thin. He, Yeah, he that was his thin thing. And so we went to what was my favorite restaurant on my 25th birthday in London. And they decided to show me a video. And it's a sped up video, which is even worse, trust me, when watching something like this. And they're in their friend's sex dungeon. They've got a fully fully equipped sex dungeon. He's on all fours with a gimp mask, a full gimp suit on, with a dog chain round his neck, a dog collar round his neck, and a dog chain who she is holding on to, and she's stood up. And they're all next to them and so they're all moving bearing in mind he's on all fours so just put that vision in your in your mind and it's sped up and it's to the I don't know whether it's the guy that makes that Gangnam style song or something like that but it's the first awful one of that that came out and it was sped up so that song haunts me now if I ever hear it 
Is it Gangnam? What is no, it? No, it's going not. Sort of, it's so it's the, like, it's oops, size your head sort of style. No, it's not. It's another one. Anyway, it's really dodgy. It's a dodgy song. It's weird. But um, yeah, and he showed me that. And I messaged my mum at the dinner table telling her, him what, telling her what he'd just shown me. And after that, she just said, like, I just don't think you can do this anymore. I think I need to say now is How did the conversation okay. even start? So he has, she has her phone. She has, have a look at this. Yeah, he showed her. me. It was, it was, was he him. Was his phone? Uh, yeah, or, his, or her phone, I don't know. But they showed me together. Say, no warning. Uh-huh. He just said, have a look at No them. warning or anything like that. They would, they would, I, he would openly talk about them going to fetish clubs. This was never a secret. I knew that he was a fetish club goer. I knew that that's what they did. But I was still, even like I was naive even then. I didn't even really understand what it was that they did or whatever. But I do remember going through his computer one day and accidentally coming across a naked picture of him in the shower which shouldn't have been accessible to me where is the protection and then having and then seeing that I just what is in your mind as a father that makes you think it's okay to show your daughter a kink of any kind whatsoever what is in your mind if you want to show your daughter vanilla stuff you know, um, so that was that was. I didn't have a choice after that. With my the the way I've been brought up, that was that was it for me. And so I wrote him an email, and I gave him a few home truths, and I said to him, "You gave me my first pill. You held my hand in this nightclub, or you've put me in some uncomfortable places. You've done loads of um, drugs with me, and then you've shown me that." Um, I think we're done here, and I never heard from him. Oh, so he didn't message? No, no he didn't no. respond to me. That- here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https dot dot forward slash forward slash aura.com aura is a-u-r-a forward slash sean atwood s-h-a-u-n-a-t-t wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info also linked in my description box on this youtube version or scan the qr code on the screen Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. Even though you cut him off, it was the right thing to do. Was there a downside to that that you missed having that, you know, figure? Yeah, like I, well, I I always had my dad who was always there, which was my sister's dad that decided to take me on as his own when I was a, a, only like two years old. So I always had a father figure, even though he was a, he wasn't the best dad in the world. Sometimes I always had a dad. And so I wasn't at a loss of having a dad, but I was really disappointed and very, you know, that was harrowing, especially to have then emailed him and said, here's an opportunity for you to apologize or acknowledge. And there was, there was nothing like that. Even when he came out to Spain, because he came out to Spain to visit me when I lived there, 
I, we were sat on the beach one day and I said to him, would you like to tell me about why you left? You know, why did you leave me when I was one years old? And he said, I don't want to talk about it. Why so, do you think he left? Because I think that he showed the tendencies that adults who are attracted to children have within my family at home mm. towards perhaps my sisters, maybe. Unfortunately, my sisters don't remember and we don't have mum around to ask further details. But I did sit on the sofa one day with mum after having had a relationship with him for a few years and said to him that it said to her, there's not, there's something not quite right. And there's something you're not telling me. And I want you to tell me. And she said, please don't ask me that question. Please don't ask me. And I said, well, I'm asking you and, and I got the answer, which I'm not going to repeat right now. But it was a very big, strong indication that he had moved towards that, towards maybe one of my sisters. And my mum, of course, straight away had him out. And so I believe that that was a strong backbone to the reasoning behind him leaving. Um, and I, we're unfortunately, oh, actually, it is fortunate. It's fortunate that they don't remember. It's fortunate that nothing, I know nothing happened happened because mum put a stop to any kind of something I don't know it's really difficult it's really difficult to explain but you get me it's dark and grim as well so speaking that out loud is just it's nasty what business did you start at 26 years old my pole dancing business um I successful yeah it was it was so it was um popular to begin with straight away I had a class of 12 girls and I only had one one or two poles at the beginning so that was interesting but we moved and we worked around it and um I was still drinking quite a lot and still dabbling in in um Charlie and and you know I loved drinking and loved partying so that was kind of yeah I was just functioning alcoholic running a biz pole business See, I used to do pole dancing classes and every time I mentioned it to a guy, they'd be like, woohoo. And I'd be like, for fitness reasons only. So when you hear people say, oh, I do pole dancing, they're always finished with for fitness reasons only because they have to justify it. And it's such a shame. I know. And pole fitness comes from strippers. That's where it originates from. We're the reason why you can walk into a pole dancing class now with, you know, little stigma, hopefully none, really, depending on what sort of community or environment you're in. But yeah, unfortunately... A lot of most, I don't know whether to say a lot or most, I'm going to go with most guys will still be, ooh, or something. Woohoo. Yeah. yeah. And so. you still have to have, explain even though you shouldn't have to, but. So yeah. what, you running it, obviously a function alcoholic and using, I mean, when white. I used to drink, and uh, sorry? White. White. Using white. I, if I drank or used white, I couldn't, do anything productive that day how did you even function let alone run a business people used to say to me and and this was further along the line of my drink and drug use is that either one there was nothing there and that was more towards my mum's death like there was just nothing there I just seemed to be like in a bubble um but 
and the other one was that you don't even look like you're on anything. Like it's just the norm. Like it was the total norm functioning. Just everything you could do, I could do drunk and high. Well, did your mum's death tip you over the edge of being able to function? Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't even look after myself. I couldn't make any money because I was too focused on getting drugs together so that I could escape. That's that was the daily task of the day was get drink, get drugs, and function until I could get drink and drugs again. And every single time. I would go to work at the club. I would have a real strong intention of, right, I'm going to start again tomorrow. I will make money tomorrow. I'll work a bit harder, but I wouldn't. I would leave the strip club early every single night just to go home so that I could go home with some drugs and just do the drugs at home on my own or with someone if I could collect another dancer to come with me, Um, which more often than not, there was always a dancer that would do your drugs. Yeah, of course. All right, so you're a functioning alcoholic and white user, but then your mum dies and that leaves anorexia and arrests and evictions and all kinds of chaos. Yeah, so mum died when I was 28 years old. She died in the April. I turned 28 in the February, and she died of a brain tumour, an aggressive grade four brain tumour. So was that completely unexpected then? Very, very unexpected. Um, we had her 60th surprise birthday party the year before and she would have had a brain tumour about this big at the time. And there was no, well, at the time we didn't know there were signs. Of course, upon reflection, there was actually some signs that were um, in place. But um, yeah, we celebrated her birthday. And then uh, one night I was on my way to work and I got a call to say that she'd had a seizure in TK Maxx and then within a few weeks we found out that she was terminally ill with a brain tumour and they tried to take part of it away to prolong her life but it was sheer determination that kept her alive for 15 months so she did you know make some miracles because she was only given three weeks to live at one point and and survived 15 months but after that it was downhill for me. When you said they tried to take some away do you mean surgery or radiotherapy or it's a resection so she had chemo she had radio but they do uh, but this was after the resection and this is when they try and take as much of the tumor away as possible but with the intention only to prolong your life um so and it was really just to get her affairs together before she died but and um it also caused complete left side paralysis within I think it was within 10 days of her being in hospital. My sisters were both abroad. One, my eldest sister lived in Australia. She'd moved from New Zealand to Australia. My other sister was abroad with her boyfriend for the week. And so they both had to get on a flight after hearing that mum had a brain tumour, which was really difficult. And then within 10 days, she couldn't move her the left side of her whole entire body because the tumour was on the right side. And then they did the resection, the operation to take as much as they could away. And there was a less than 9% chance of her getting any mobility back whatsoever. And within two days, she started wiggling her toes, moving her knees. And within a week, she was at home doing washing and walking up and down her apartment. Strong woman. She was a very strong, powerful woman. And sheer determination will, for sure, prolong your life and keep... Yeah, the will to survive is a very powerful 
um thing um but for sorry go on no no carry on oh just for me when I heard the word terminal I think that was my that's when I pressed self-destruct for me that's when my grieving started whereas for everybody else they clung on to a lot of hope and a lot of will for her to carry on and live a good life but what I don't know I suppose being the baby of the family listening to the fact that you're going to lose your mum for me I was like right I'm I'm gonna this is going to kill me. This is going to ruin me. So you're self-destructing, but you've got to hide that from her to protect her because she's sick. How did you do that? Um, I wasn't present. Um, I wasn't there for a lot of my mum's illness um, because I found seeing her so difficult. The visual aspect of watching someone who is on numerous medications that will change their appearance dramatically drastically as well as her having a brain tumor which does touch into your to shifting your personality and the way your brain functions so there was a lot of different elements to adjust to which I found very difficult and I was I I was weaker than my sisters my sisters showed up for her my sister flew back over to Australia only to go and pack up her whole entire life to come home to be mum's full-time carer and she had a life out there for years. And then my other sister was her, was her secondary, pro- secondary carer. Um, they were both incredible. But every time I went down there within the hour, I was back in the car on the phone to a dealer getting whatever I could because I just, I couldn't fathom it. And so she didn't see much. My sisters knew what was going on. Um, and I didn't want, and, um, when the eviction happened, um, I think, yeah, mum was still around. Um, and then I think she passed, like, it when I was in between places because I would only ever get a um, get a place for, like, a, a month before getting kicked out again. Are we able to talk today about what you were doing on the day your mother passed? I got in the car and on the way, my sister rang me and said, don't go home as into mum's house, come straight to the hospice, you need to come now. And um, I think she died the next day at about six o'clock. And all whilst I was still high, I, I didn't eat back then, really. I can't even remember ever putting anything in my mouth other than alcohol or something up my nose or taking a tablet to try and stop me from <laughs> um, whatever. And so... Then we were all round her bedside and um, the, the second she took her last breath and I, and I would say it was the second, I got up, I walked out and within five minutes I'd left the hospice and within 10 minutes I was at the pub. Within an hour and a half I was back in Surrey where all the drugs were available to me and my friends were housing me and stuff. You said you were holding her hand? I was holding... Um, I th- I think I was holding her shoulder actually. My sisters were holding her hand, but I was at her her right shoulder. And how did your sisters deal with her death? Um, they both um, turned to alcohol and um, other stuff as well for a hot minute. To be honest, this like that night. This was the, like one of the most dangerous things I think I've probably ever done in my life. But that day, I went. But once I'd been up in Surrey, I partied then all night, not partied, but cried and took loads of drugs in front of my friends. 
And then at five o'clock in the morning, my sisters rang me and said, you should be here with us. And they were all at mum's house drinking and they were a, a mess. Everybody was. And so I got in the car and I drove back down to Bournemouth. This is like an hour and a half, two hour drive. I hadn't slept for days um, and went back down and then carried on. And then I think I just was back up and back down. So they were a mess too. Um, yeah, we were all a mess. Well, at some point you've got to sober up and it's going to hit you. When did that happen? For me, that didn't need to happen. <laughs> so I carried it on for a, for a while, but they were both amazing. Um, it did wreck us. Um, it has wrecked us, shall I say, because we are, we do live with broken hearts for sure. And of course, the stuff that you know that we'll discuss soon, it has added to that. Um, but, Eventually, I mean, my my sister has a very um, demanding job and then my other sister needed purpose and we had quite a bit, well, they had quite a bit of support down there. Um, they decided to go traveling for seven months and they did that, which was great for them. They saw the world and they had reasons to smile at the beauty of the world and being together. Um, and yeah, we're lucky to have the three of us because it, we've kept each other going. So apart from obviously all the drinking and drugs, how did you move on from this? Um, it wasn't for a while, to be honest. There was a lot of, you know, homelessness and, and, and not having any money. So not being able to live at all not even being able to find anywhere to live or being able to put a deposit down somewhere and eventually found somewhere and then my body just was rejecting drugs by this time I was so sick for so many hours after a session so in the end I just I just gave up at trying to get myself in that place and um I always smoked I always smoked green and that didn't stop, but smoking green saved my life, <laughs> I swear, on on a few occasions because it brought me down from the hysterical level that had come down off white and alcohol and other drugs does, where where suicide was were, was intentional and I wanted it and I had you know every intention and and I would smoke and thank goodness it would take that edge off for me so that I could calm myself down. So I'll always be thankful to that plant <laughs> for those times. Um, but alcohol and and the white, I just I couldn't do it anymore. My did, body just wasn't letting me. Did you have a boyfriend at this time? Um, yeah, we had just broken up. Um, he was the guy that I lived with in a caravan for about five months, um, a couple of months after my mum passed. And he was bang on it and he ended up washing it up and do and and smoking it so I'm I'm grateful for that breakup even though apparently he's doing really well now which I'm really really grateful for too did he end up in prison no this um no I did go out with a guy um and this was after that this was about a year <coughs> after that when I was still doing it and I was working in, in a club in Bournemouth and he was my dealer and he, he was supplying me my white. And then 
he he wanted to get with me, wanted to get with me and I would never do it. And then I stopped doing Charlie, but I was still drinking and I ended up sleeping with him and we got together. And then the next thing I know, he was in prison and he'd lived a double life because he had a girlfriend. In fact, I think he had a couple of girlfriends. He had baby mums, this, that and the other here, there and everywhere. And Muggins over here looked after him for a year and a half in prison, prison visits, money, anything that he needed. And when he, and I had, I mean, I had stacks of letters from him. I mean, like 300 pages of how much he loves me and how much I've done for him and rah, rah, rah. And within, I think, 24 hours, he was a C word to me after getting out the can, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it was vile, <laughs> really vile. And 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 what's really sad about it is that I've got these great, they, these great two stripper friends, um, they're twins at um, this club that I used to work in and one of them got with him and unfortunately he he turned out to be far worse towards her and so um as yeah I, f- I, I feel for her um because he's got work to do so during this time what were you doing for work I was dancing in a strip club yeah, yeah. I was I was working down in Bournemouth in a strip club I was still teaching pole as well up in Surrey so I was up and down from Surrey, like a yo-yo, yeah. And then you, is, is that how you got to opening and running a new studio? Yeah, and then I would, and um, then when my mum was, when my mum knew that she was going to die, she wanted to make sure my sisters and I were set up camp. So she put, so she bought me my poles, which is, it comes as a four pole studio type of thing. So you can set up your own studio. So I found a new venue and I had these four poles rather than just one or two in this other small venue. And um, I was able to accommodate much more of a timetable, much more of a client base. And then I moved to another studio where it was all mine. And then, you know, business was booming. Yeah. And were you still functioning? By this time, I was just smoking, I think. Yeah, I was just smoking green by this time. I was still drinking and, and, and dabbling. But yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't taking over my life, but I was, I've, yeah, I was smoking a heavy amount of green. So it was relatively a calm period in your life at that point. Yeah, it was for a minute. Yeah, a minute. here, the, a, here and there. Then mm. a toxic male comes into your life. A narcissist. Yeah, yeah, until he came in. Um, How'd you meet? We met when I was going out with my first love when I was at the sixth form. And he was one of, he was going out with one of my girlfriends and we were very, very good friends, very good friends. And it was so great to have a male companion back then that you could just be friends with. He came back into my life 15 years later. He used my mum's passing as a way to tap into my emotional um, center. Whoopsie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, and he ca- and he'd been to Australia and he'd been to the Amazon rainforest and he'd met with this indigenous community and he'd 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 experienced shaman- shamanic practitioners and the culture of indigenous ways and the connection to plants that they have and plant medicine and that way of life 
And all of a sudden, the the vaka came back in thinking he was God himself. You can just imagine it with the Aboriginal tattoos when the man's a white guy from Bournemouth. He's covered in <laughs> Aboriginal tattoos. Like, don't even get me started. It's the, it's <laughs> more cringy. But at the time, this glowing light and the ah oh, came with it when he, you know, it it seemed like the most divine synchronicity that I knew him already. I loved his mum. He had met my mum he'd ha- and I was just tapping into my spirituality like deeply as well you know lots of yoga lots of meditation um practice and things like that and reading and self-study and and that path and then he came along and I was like well this is just you know this is just perfect um and little did I know that he was he was a narcissist through and through. And how, the red how did you, yeah, how how did did you discover start? that? Was it love bombing? Well, the red flags that he wasn't allowed to see the three children that he'd already birthed <laughs> did not make a difference to me, apparently, at the time. That wasn't enough for me to go, mm, maybe I should question this. Mm. No, instead I moved him into my home. The routine was that I got up at 5 a- I had to get up at 5 a.m. I'd make his pack lunch for him, which had to be a very particular organic salad that I'd bought the day before with my money and in, in, uh, <laughs> bought into my home that I was paying for whilst he laid in bed. Then I would... I would spend three hours of my day taking him to and from the train station to pick him up. Then I would walk in from teaching pole after training two hours in the day then teaching up to three hours, then walk in at 10 o'clock at night for him to look up from his book and then look back down at his book because I was five five minutes past 10, not 10 o'clock. And I'd driven home like a maniac to get home at that time. I loved talking to my clients after a class. That was the joy of it. There was no time for that. I had to shoot. Sometimes I shot before them and they shut the door for me because I was so frightened of getting home too late. When I got home, I had to make his dinner. Then I'd make his dinner where he he was. I wasn't spoken to. And then he would go to bed and leave me to do. And this was my this was my life. And I was paying for everything. So it was financially abusive. Psychologically, it was abusive and sexually abusive. He used to come in the kitchen and he and he would literally push me down on my knees flop his thing out and and I would have to do that and he would do things like um I wasn't allowed to use my hands and in turn my lips were so cut all the way in the roof of my mouth on a daily basis from where he from the 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 particular way that he made me do these things um, that I was just constantly in pain and and under this very dark spell um, and he used to say things like one day you'll be ready as in that I had some really bad darkness inside me and he kept making me feel that I needed to heal in some way and one day threatened to break up with me pretty much if I didn't listen to his shamanic drum practice and I the worst part of it all for me was that my dog is my number one being in my life and during that time I made decisions with regards to her, like leaving her at home for numerous hours whilst we went and did this shamanic practice. I would never poo-poo on shamanic practitioning whatsoever because I've been lucky enough now to experience the true nature of that, which is its finest essence is uh, is absolutely of, of one of purity. But unfortunately, he abused um, shamanic ways and shamanic culture and used that to his advantage to get into my head and even more 
um, and was even quite sexually abusive before we went into this drumming journey and things like that, which is just, uh, it's a no-no beyond belief and it was awful. But yeah, my dog, you know, I said that I was going to go to the Amazon with him for three months and asked my sister to have my dog for three months. My friends now would gawp at me leaving her for, you know, being here. Yeah. I've even said to you, you know, I've got, I've got to be careful because I can't leave the dog <laughs> for too long. She's my be all and end all. So that started to to swirl up the questions in my mind and then one day he he wanted to do this thing in bed and it's not for me it's something that I don't like doing um that was been my decision for very many years when I tried it for the first time when I was 17 I hated it um and and I've never and I've never wanted to do it since I don't think I ever will to be honest and he pushed it and he pushed it and he pushed it and he kept doing the thing not asking not trying to do the thing he kept going to do the thing that I didn't want him to do and one morning I flipped out and he said to me you should do it because it turns me on those were his exact his exact words and and I flipped out I went absolutely mad um and within an hour I was sat on the doorstep apologizing to him crying and saying I'm so sorry I love you please don't leave me and and things like that within an hour he'd managed to make me feel that I'd done something so terribly wrong luckily my intuition had grown very strong by that time We'd gone down to Bournemouth so that we could see our families separately for the weekend. And the moment we got down to Bournemouth, he got out of the car and I said, that's, that's the end. And he said, fine. And then I went straight, drove straight to my sisters and I told them what had happened sexually, first of all, and then continued to tell them the stories. And they just went straight round to his mum's house. He wasn't there. And they said to his mum, you will have to keep him away from our sister. If he comes anywhere near her again, we will be ringing the police. Um, blah blah blah, and that was that was not the end of that, unfortunately, because oh. he, yeah, he then contacted me within a few hours and said, "If you tell your sisters about this message, I'll ring the police and I'll tell them that you drive when you smoke weed, that you sell to your neighbours, this, that, and the other, which is a load of bollocks." Um, and then he started to ask what I can only call stalk and harass me for the next good few weeks until I could eventually get rid of him. So his mother didn't take any words from your sister seriously and didn't tell her son to stop acting up like that or was he totally out of control in her eyes? Yeah, that would be it because I don't re- I don't know what she was thinking because he said you're not welcome in our home anymore. My mum can't you've broken my mum's heart or something along those lines, but who am I to not know that that was just man- further manipulation because his I know his mum and I know that he, he yeah, she would have known it was the truth for sure underneath that. Um but she had a very dominant um, husband, very dominant person that had caused him actually a lot of trauma, which is how it's all manifesting out now. Um, but he, so this is what happened afterwards. He latched, he tried to, <laughs> he got me pregnant, but he didn't know that he'd got me pregnant. Now, I wasn't due on my period. I hadn't mentioned that I was due on my period, let alone mention any signs of being late on my period. There was no conversation or anything mentioned to him whatsoever about this but he was he was obsessing over anything that he could to latch on to 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 me 
control because, you. Because, to control me. And so he said, I, I had nine minute voice notes from him. Whilst I'm trying to teach classes, I'm trying to function as a human being whilst this, this person is bullying me through voice notes that I've then, I then know I've got to hear later on saying, I think you're addicted to stripping, blah, 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 blah. Sending me articles about being addicted to weed, posting pictures on his social media about being a victim of a member of the fact of someone that you love who's got addiction, all of this rubbish trying to manipulate me and emotional blackmail me into, into succumbing to him and, and, you know, and that. And then he latched on to the fact that he wanted to get me pregnant. And he, he did, he did manage that, but he did not know this. And he would leave me voice notes saying, um, if this baby, this, that, and the other, you need to do this because this baby, that, and the other. I hadn't even mentioned that I was late on my period. I wasn't, he, he didn't even know I was due on my period. I don't, he went from, from, right, that's not working and that's not working to, I wanted to, to get her pregnant to, she's got a baby and, and I had given him no, no fuel for this fire whatsoever. And so in the end, I got my friend to, pee on a stick, sent him a picture of a negative pregnancy test and said, there you go. I haven't even said I'm late on my fucking period. What, like you, you, what are you talking about? What baby? There is no baby. I then found out I was pregnant shortly after. Um, my friend actually did a tarot reading for me because I was in such a mess from this relationship. It was very traumatic. It was very dark and manipulative. And, um, then she said, there's, there's a there's um a pregnancy here and I was pregnant yeah so um I felt out of um the safe for the safety of m- my child and the safety of myself it would be the best option to have an abortion and so I did and he d- he well unless he sees this um yeah, he's never known to this day it was a big secret so when you said he was stalking you for weeks, was that leaving messages or did it manifest Physical. in other ways? Oh, he turned up at my house. Yeah. And what did he do? Was there a knock at the door? What happened? He would just stare at me and slowly walk towards the, my caravan. And so, and he said, I've come for my stuff. And so he maybe had like a book there and I don't know, a pair of socks or something. So I put it in a box. I put it outside and then he sat down in my garden. At this point, I phoned my sister and I said, can you just stay on the phone to me? He's outside and he will not go. And um, I did, was what, saying to him... Are you, are you able to say what he looked like? Was he a physically imposing person or...? Yeah, he was tall, very tall. Um, he worked out a lot. Um, he'd changed his diet to a very minimal plant-based diet when he was over there. So he was very shredded. He was living very minimalistically as uh, uh, visually he was, it was great what he was doing with his life. Wonderful. Connecting to plant medicine and learning from indigenous communities, everything I would seek for from Mm. the perfect partner. Did he have an income? He was a plumber and he, when he was over here, he hated it because when I took him to the train station, he was going into London and working, doing contracts because whilst he was over here, he had to make money. But I think he, 
yeah, he, he had that income, but I think that he had every intention of going back to Amazon or Brazil or um, Australia, and he wanted me to do that with him. Mm. And that any income was, was for that. That was for that journey. So how tough was it for you after the abortion? Yeah, it was horrible. The day of the abortion was awful. It was just awful. Like the whole situation was just horrible. Like I never, like after the first abortion, I said, you know, I could never do that again ever. I would always only ever say yes to having a baby. But I just saw how awful and stressful this would have been. And I knew because by this time, I knew I knew what I believed when it came to where we go when we transition and when we pass on and I knew that that baby would go straight up to the heavens with my mum and be in a far safer place than they would be down here on earth with him manipulating the situation. All I thought was caught, caught, stre- you know, that type of thing and stress and I don't want that for me or my child. No, no, and that's a tough decision to make. yeah. Yeah, it was hard. So then you broke it off to Canada? Yeah, <laughs> I did. Get away. I did. I had a friend that had moved, a school friend. She was like my bestest friend in the whole wide world. And she'd moved to Canada and was just doing great out there. And so I I visited her three times in a row. And she happened to work for a luxurious travel agency out there and had the hookup of the hookups. And so we traveled in a very luxurious way and went to some amazing places we've we went to loads of different places um we did the irish loop so there's a there's an island off canada and it's called newfoundland and labrador and when you're over there they speak canadian irish if you've never heard an odder (laughs) accent in the world it's half canadian and half irish accent um and um when you are in Newfoundland and Labrador, you're closer to Ireland than you are to Vancouver. So yeah, we did a really long stretch because she was orig- she was um, based in Vancouver. So yeah, that was amazing and very liberating to visit some incredible places. It was yeah, it was a, the highlight of my life is, has been some of the travel that I've been grateful enough to have experienced. I think Jen's going to enjoy this next story. Embodying <laughs> the spirit of my friend's mum. <laughs> Juicy. <laughs> yeah, how does that work? Um, so the year that my mum died, when I moved into that caravan with that guy, I went we- through what I would call my first experience of a spiritual awakening. I do not in any mean... I do not in any way mean that I, I am now spiritually awakened by far from it or that I'm, that it, that it was an enlightenment that I received from it, but it was, it went, took me from my ego into a world of spirit and to know that she was very much still around. She, um, hugged me through somebody else. Um, she sat on the sofa behind me, slammed the sofa like that. Um, she came through the fire, this fire that I was in a strong, I I would go into trance and sometimes for days on end, I would not eat or shower or anything like that. I was in this trance and this was some, this was off the drugs as well. This was sometimes it was on them and some, but more often than not, I'd had a couple of puffs on a spliff 
and I would go and lay down on the floor and go into trance and she would pull up in her car outside the caravan and she would come in the caravan and I and this whole journey would happen it would take a whole another podcast to tell you just about that experiences those experiences in the caravan but that's when I started to tune in into psyche and into um yeah into the psychic abilities that we have and that were already within me and so then um moving away from um those drugs and drinking lots um I'd started to live a much healthier life these recent years and my friend and I um one day she'd picked these mushrooms from from the ground when she was on a dog walk um and one day we decided to take them. So we had this psychedelic experience, our first psychedelic experience of mushrooms, and it was beautiful and amazing. And I was just like, oh my gosh, why doesn't the world know about this? Anybody that's experienced that will understand that it's just the most phenomenal, sensational experience ever. And then um, my other friend was really interested in them too. And so we went to Amsterdam um for a couple of days during I think it was during lockdown actually um yeah for about four nights and we hired out this houseboat and we went and we got some truffles from the mushroom shop and um and so it of course alters your state but one of the most prominent things about this day was it was the um anniversary of her mum's passing who had passed just the I think it was the first anniversary um and it was also Lionsgate Portal, which is the 12th of the 12th. Okay, so, uh, sorry, the 8th of the 8th, not the 12th of the 12th. Oh my God, if any astrologers are watching, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, it's the 8th of the 8th, it's Lionsgate Portal. And, and basically the portals are open for spirit world to come down, for us to elevate our energy in order for them to connect with us. <laughs> it was the most powerful day of the year. We did not need truffles, but we did, <laughs> but we did do them. And so we are like oh my god is this like starting to wear off or something like that because we've been tripping I think all day and it was lovely um and then all of a sudden she was she was grieving right this was so raw for her she just lost her mum so I of course could empathize from experience which is very soothing to some to someone that is grieving someone else that knows exactly what you're feeling it's really soothing sometimes so she was sat in this corridor of this houseboat and I was sat on the doorstep with the door open and I just got this feeling that there was these spirits, mum, my mum and her mum, and they wanted to come in. And so to stay seated where I was for the door to be open and to allow that to happen within um, this, this all took place over the space of a few hours. Oh, I don't even know what the neighbours must have thought when <laughs> from the cries and the roars and everything that happened, but... She said, oh my goodness, I can see her. And I said, okay, you know, and I just allowed her because I had already had these experiences in the past, but just never as deep as it was about to get. Um, and she said, I think she's there. And so I just allowed her to nod. And then I went and sat with her and sat next to her. And she said, oh my goodness, they're, they're, they're there. She, uh, they're both here. And music will really induce these journeys as well. So, um, the song Olive, You're Not Alone was on, right? Which is a powerful song anyway, when you're tripping on mushrooms. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> Trust me. 
Um, and so now that's a very, very meaningful <laughs> song to us. But um, yeah, so um, they came through and then we're sitting there like this. And I just said to mum, in my mind's eye, because I knew that she was there and, and her mum was there. And I just said, mum, I'm really okay with this. If you're okay with me asking her this, I'm really okay with this. And she said, go ahead. And so I just said to my friend's mum, if you'd like to use my body, you're more than welcome to. It was like Whippy Goldberg style, like no other, like exactly the same as what you've seen on Ghost. That's exactly how it happens. And for me personally. Um, And with that, I looked at my hand again and it wasn't my hand, it was hers. And um, my friend knew straight away. It's, It's a really chilling um story for sure and still chilling to this day when I tell these stories because this has happened numerous occasions now as well so this is quite the norm now which is lovely I'm like come on in (laughs) (laughs) um and so with that so you can we I'll say you because I'm just talking generally but other people might have different experiences it's so frightening for this human for us to comprehend on a human realm you can't look at each other so immediately we hugged so that we're not looking at each other but she knew I was her mum straight away she could feel me she I was it was the same voice it was and things like that and so um, immediately she knew that I, 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 and, um, oh no, first of all, she said, I said, let me give you a, a cuddle. And then we came back and I, and I was allowed to be in my body again. And I said to her, just to let you know that that was your mum hugging you. Are you, I, I need to know that you're okay with this before we go ahead. And that's what I will always ask now as well. You have to ask someone's consent. You can't do shit like that to them without their consent. It's too scary and too emotional as well. And she said, you know, yes. And say, and then say she, we went back and she came back into my body. My spirit just sits here, basically. It just sort of lingers in between. Um, but she was able to embrace her like the, like the, the, the baby like cries from the pit of the stomach that needed to happen when your mum passes and she was able to do that in her mother's arms and I was able to tell her how proud of her that I was and how I was watching her I could see everything how I'm bursting with pride for her um and it was yeah it was profound can you explain what it feels like inside yourself yeah so I'm not me I'm her I'm her mum so I actually feel like her mum so one funny experience when we did this it was the last time that we did this actually and we usually always know now like when we're when we're gonna heighten our states of consciousness she's she's gonna use my body because she's so welcome there is nothing I have ever enjoyed more than doing this for someone there's nothing more beautiful that touches me to my core like it's it's everything I mean it's really difficult as well because then they go away and you don't have them and it's a it's, it's hard the aftermath is 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 quite 
um, is difficult. But um, yeah, there was one trip we had and I wanted to smoke a joint, obviously, because it was me, but she hadn't quite, <laughs> she wasn't quite done with me. And so I picked up this joint and went pit, 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 like that. <laughs> and I couldn't even smoke it. It was disgusting to me. I didn't even know how to smoke it. So I'm very much her. So what I can see when I'm looking at my friend is actually I'm looking at my daughter. Oh my God. And, and actually I can feel the love that she has for her daughter. And I can feel the pride. I can feel it all through my body, only through my physical body, you know, and my heart wasn't her heart. So it's not to the extent that she can feel it, but it is as well. And you talked about the aftermath. Is it almost like a loss when it leaves you? It is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's, 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 so do you mean when the spirit leaves me or lost emotionally? <laughs> well, it's uh, when the spirit leaves you, but also all the emotions you're feeling of like, like you said, you were seeing your daughter, their daughter, and uh, the feeling of love of, um, yeah, the, the extreme emotions. What does it feel like when that leaves you? Are you not quite sad? Yeah. Yeah. And that's so well observed as well, just from telling you that short story. Yeah. Very sad to the point where my friend will go off about for the day and do her thing the next day. And I have to call her and now she knows to check in with me because she knows how I feel, but I have to call her and then I'm in floods of tears. And I just said, I just need to hear your voice. Like you don't know, understand how much I've missed you because I still have this lingering, like that deep connection. And as friends, this particular person happens to be some kind of, I don't know, star seed of a soul sister or something, whatever, I don't know. There's something deeper than just our our human friendship, um, which is why this is all happened, of course. This is all synchronized divinely. You know, the, the synchronicities that have happened, I could list endless synchronicities that we've both had you know signs and and symbols everywhere if you're open to believing that um and she then embodied my mum straight after my mum decided to jump on in her body this is in Amsterdam but she didn't have a, a she she didn't have a very pleasant experience unfortunately so I asked my mum a couple of questions and my um, and I got to cry for for a few minutes but then I I just needed my friend back it was too much it it was very bizarre seeing my friend who is younger than me and who I see as slightly younger than me in terms of protection um wise and she was very frightened and unfortunately she didn't know how to come back into her body so I thought she I thought she was dying at one point because her body went all floppy where a spirit where also where you're open you're open to other spirits right so mum might have wanted to use her body but there's a queue of other people there wanting to jump right on in as well because this this person's open and so there was all of that happening so we got, it was so funny. She just, she said, will you get in the shower with me? Got me in the cold shower, got the shower, <laughs> shower head, freezing cold shower and just started gulping and gulping and gulping because you're so depleted from this experience. A spirit is using your body. That is the energy zap is like no other. Yeah. And so she's there with this shower head <laughs> and we're in it. We're fully clothed. It's fucking. Mental. <laughs> Honestly, it's <laughs> whack. Like, <laughs> as if people didn't think I was already a little bit woo woo. Um, 
And this has happened a few times now. We've been in, a, in the middle of a rave before and her mum's flown on into my body. We've gone straight to this wall, hugged like this, and I've had to calm her down. We've, we've been on... Um, Is the, her mum a good rave? We've been on the K. She was up above the DJ and she flew into my body wow. because Emily was ha- we were doing K and she she was ha- she it would got it gotten too intense yeah because K is a psychedelic right exactly mm. yeah have you ever had any evil experiences with evil spirits because uh, like you said when you're that open and your body's empty like a shell. And there's a cube. So I don't have mirrors in my home. There's only one small mirror in my home. It's in my second room. I I would never have a mirror in my bedroom. You couldn't pay me. Um, Told you. Yeah. They're portals. Mirrors are portals. And I'm very protective of who is in my home and and what I do with my energy and things like that as well, because that that will create, you know, whatever. Um, but I've ne I've, I've had, when I was having the, tra- when I was in the trances, I had some, I, I met the devil. I met with the devil. Oh I was God. in hell and I, and he was leaning over his fire and he, and he was there. And I don't believe in the devil now because I don't, because I believe in what I believe, which is another story. But at that time, it took that to make me know that I needed to stop doing drugs. I what needed to look start like? looking after myself. Well, it was my ex-boyfriend that was embodying them all. So he was, he, at once I, I watched myself, my ex-boyfriend embodied me and I watched myself walk around, helping myself to his stuff, rolling joints on the table because I was sh- being shown my behavior. And then I got put with the devil because I was being shown where I was headed, which is exactly what it was. Like, in my opinion, like a, a white addiction is demonic. You know, demonic. That's the closest to the devil I think we're ever going to get. And I haven't tried brown, right? And thank goodness I haven't because that's where I would be. I would love the stuff. Mm, Definitely erodes the soul and the conscience of white and other certain substances. Exactly. So you don't have any mirrors in your home at all? I have one small mirror. My friends can't (laughs) believe it. Like, how do you survive? I do need a full length mirror. I do. Uh, Why would um, you place it? Only in my spare bedroom. There's not a mirror in the bathroom. There's not a mirror in the bedroom. Have you seen how many mirrors are in this house? Yeah. yeah that's why i'm always like oh my god i look like this (laughs) when i'm in friends houses i'm like oh a mirror oh yeah i have a fear at night to look in the mirror when it's dark is that from that my subconscious telling me that something's going on of course it is of course because i can scry i can bring my mum into my own body by staring at my eyes in the mirror that is called scrying i could and say like, see how intensely we're looking into each other's eyes right now. Yeah. That's how someone can bring someone right through and, and stuff. There's very many ways that psychics access their, um, psyche. Um, and, 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 and there's many ways that spirits will come through. Um, I personally love this. Like, it's just, yeah, I, I, I love it. Would you say that the embodiment experiences then were integral to your healing to bring you to the point where you be- could become a healer and do the healing retreats, etc.? Yeah, so I would I I have resistance to calling myself a healer. What I do is I offer um, ex- my my knowledge that I've learned through experience to other people 
that can use these tools to help themselves, use these practices to help themselves. And sometimes doing it together is is nicer and feels more loving. And so that's kind of what I do is just, I'm like a space holder, an organizer type thing. I'll tell you when we're meditating and we'll get together and do it. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't um, give myself the credit of being a healer. Um, but yeah, it was definitely the catalyst to knowing about who we are, who's around, where we're going, where we came from, the types of questions that are not deemed normal, but are very normal. So you're in such a good place and then your sister gets ill. So your reaction to your mum getting ill and your sister getting ill, they were very different, weren't they? Yeah, they have been really different, actually. Mm. Yeah, really different. Um, I've learned about honouring those people that have transitioned into the other world as well and honouring, you know, what life is about, really. It's hard work. That's what life is, hard work as well. But there is enjoyment and joy and beauty to be discovered and embraced along that journey, Um which I believe is a journey of forgiveness and not forgiveness um, at the effect, but forgiveness at the cause. Um, And so in October, just gone, got told that she had um, a few weeks, maybe a few months to live. Um, She's still with us. She had determination. She is her mother's daughter. Um, And what am I to do like really am I really going to go and drink and do a load of gear and all of that stuff no I've 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 tried that Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've tried that and it doesn't work um and so I I have to find a purpose and so it's it it continues it has been and continues to be a very uh deeply complex and harrowing time to consider living my life without my big sister um and um my middle sister is so she's two years older than me and then um my eldest sister who is is facing death is is six years older than me so they're four years apart they were born on the same day four years apart so they're like twins but not basically they're best friends they're really close and so I have of course considered this triangle of sisters not just me but my other sister and what this is doing for her um and so my pain is my purpose that's my reason to live on is to try and find methods and tools that have helped me find love grace joy laughter and reason to live and ways to do that as well um because I have a deep empathy for other people that go through pain I was trying to think you know, if my sister was facing death like how our relationship how our conversations would change how's that what's happened in your life with your sister then so I'm experiencing the same fear around seeing her visually um but she has a huge support network down there I also have a dog that needs care if I leave her um and that needs to be considered and um 
So I can't be down there all the time. I also need to earn money and make sure that I've got a roof over my head. And that was one of my first priorities when I found out that she was terminally ill is how am I going to make sure that I'm safe and sheltered? Because that was one of the first things that I lost when mum was passing away. Um, And that's really important that we meet our basic needs whilst we're facing grief. Um, and that's, it's really difficult, but it's really important because if we lose, you know, the safety of our own home to be able to grieve in our own home and things like that. And it's really hard because I wish we could all just have a, have time off from work when we're facing grief. But unfortunately we have to earn a a living and things like that needs to be considered. So I've been a lot more sensible, logical, pragmatic, um, this time, but also very emotional. Um, and I've seen her get married because mm. they decided to get married in November. Congratulations. <laughs> she will, she will eventually. Um, so they got married. They had the most amazing wedding. It was very emotive. Everybody was oh. so exhausted afterwards. Um, it was magical, beautiful. Um, since then we raised money and the Ritz came and showed up for her and gave her a two night stay at the Ritz, um, which was on her bucket list, which is oh. amazing. Um, and she's done things like seen shows, um, and, and now she spends her days at the moment, um, with her husband at home. She has so many people that love her, so many friends and so, so many people that adore her. She's such a big part of so many other people's lives. For some reason, this world takes the best ones. They truly do. And there is for, there is reasons perhaps unknown to us of a higher nature. Um, but they, yeah, she is one of the most caring, generous, kind people you you would ever meet. Such a sweet nature. Um, and so at the moment, she's just embracing her marriage and her lovely home that she bought um, with him and her um, daughter-in-law. And um, she's, you know, struggling. She's in what we would call the declining phase of this process. Her lung gets drained now often by the hospice nurse that's visiting home. It's so changeable that likely when this is aired who who knows where we'll be it's that it, it that's where we're at at the moment it's a very vulnerable place um her, the her, she recent because the because the breast cancer moved into her lungs right that she now has lung cancer in both lungs that's that's what's um the secondary ca- cancer that's caused this prognosis and so um say so the lung say so that they have a drain in the lung to drain any fluid and so her breathing is very rattly and rumbly and she's sleeping a lot and so yeah I will see her soon um I see my other sister she comes up to me when she can and we speak a lot but you know what's amazing is that when she gave up chemo and radio our conversation started again when she was going through chemo and radiotherapy, she was so poorly, she couldn't even have a conversation with me. That's what's important to me. Perhaps not being down there all the time and seeing her, but being able to speak to her on the phone, her being able to say, I love you. How are you feeling? Can I listen to you? Can I be a soundboard for you right now? Especially knowing where I know that she's going because my mum and dad have already told me and solidified that for me. So, Can you say 
they're going, she's going back home with them. That's where she's going. And, and they're all around her right now. They, they place their hands on her and, and they're trying to keep her alive for us. But that's where she's going and she will be overjoyed and delighted and safe when she's there. But right now she is a 42 year old woman that doesn't want to die. And that has a lot to live for and is sad and frustrated and scared and angry and witnessing those emotions from, of someone that you, that you love so much. It, it, there's that aspect that's so hard about it. But then the aspect that I'm losing my big sister, who is the best big sister you could ever ask for, aside from my other sister. So, what yeah. What do you say, Shah, to people hard. who take their health for granted? Mm. So, um, I have, this has been one of my, my, deepest subjects that I've studied continue to study and apply knowledge to on a daily basis and have done this for nearly 10 years now is that GPs I think they get but I I don't know whether it's five or 25 but either way that's a very very low number let's say 25 just for the sake of that being a higher number 25 hours of nutritional education to become a GP what we put into our bodies is going to manifest itself. Whatever you have got is to do likely with your blood, with your gut, with your breathing, with your environment. And so now I feel very grateful and honored to have come across what I believe is the truthful information and I'm talking now going from plant-based diet to an alkaline diet. And when I say alkaline, I mean real alkaline, which is original plants, not hybrid plants. So you would be surprised to know that spinach and pineapples are not great for us because they're Genetically not modified. Because they're not original plants. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was listening to a podcast on this today. <laughs> the, the guy, the guy said that um, doctors' decisions are now the third leading cause of death in America. There's a woman on. I'm surprised on it's YouTube. Not the first. She's. Um, <laughs> I won't mention her name because the, the, there's a lot of complaints about her. Is going on there and, and telling the world about. So Dr. Sebi apparently passed away. Dr. Sebi is the original doctor um, who tried to offer this information and has, you know, luckily left us with extensive amounts of knowledge so that we can practice and research. But unfortunately, there are more people out there talking about what they think is an alkaline diet that actually isn't an alkaline diet because it still is included, it, it, it is still um, mucus forming starch um, foods but I would say that's def- like diet like of, of course diet what, what environment and breath yeah. as well Sunlight. we're not even breathing properly am I allowed to recommend a book or anything like that yeah what's it about <laughs> okay so there's a book called <laughs> breath and it's by a guy called James Nestor and he travels the world um, there's loads of different um, breath work formulas and you know, facilitators out there now, of course there is, but he talks about just the difference between nasal and mouth breathing. And nasal breathing is insanely good for you. On the flip reverse, mouth breathing is insanely bad for you. Like like our whole facial structure has changed 
from its natural structure, oh, just from facial breathing. Mouth daily. Well, this is what this guy sure, did. We'll love it. He did. So James Nestor, literally for one week, they did this and he could only mouth breathe. And so they, they did loads of medical tests and, 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 um, monitored all of the differences. And then for one week, a little bit of tape went over his mouth and the difference in, I, I mean, he was touching on disease and, and yeah like really bad health when he was mouth breathing and that's why breath like that's the first thing that we do when we're born into this world and whoever got taught to breathe properly through their nose I didn't I got told deep breath <gasps> like that's not good for you you know gentle fluid nasal breathing is where we're supposed to do yes there are different types of breathing for different types of um, benefits you know if you want to calm and regulate your feelings if you want to move from fight or flight mode all of the if you want to sleep better there's loads of amazing different modalities out there but generally on a day-to-day basis we should be more conscious of our breath and say so breath diet environment for sure like what these screens don't even get me started you know nature that's that's where we heal is doing natural things within natural environments oh, I totally agree. and yeah. and big pharma <laughs> was the chemical industry that's what big pharma was it was the chemical industry originally and so wh- why are we just saying oh thanks i'll take that off you and make everything better with this pill which is what i did i was on a high level of antidepressants for 15 years i popped every single pill going that the doctor would ever give me so you're working on your book, Sha. I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah. keeps pushing us. You're working on your book. <laughs> yeah. People. Heal with spirits. Yeah. What's going to happen with your book? Um, hopefully people will read it. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully people will read it. People will relate to it. Even, you know, even if they relate to one thing and they're able, and it's able to help them transcend maybe some, some pain, for experiences that they've struggled with that is my intention is to normalize lots of conversation around addiction what addiction is um and how that looks so different for everybody um to try and help people not feel so alone with it um and you know grief and living with grief you know and um and just about our existence and who we are really how far into your book are you um i would say give it a few months (laughs) yeah i would say give it a few months because i'm back and forth and back and forth and i was really particular about doing this at a specific time where i felt that i'd had control over a few of my own um, habits and behaviors that needed changing and so yeah it's a bit of a journey alongside my journey really if people want to go to your retreats or anything like that how do they find you so it's heal underscore with underscore spirit on instagram and facebook um, that's the best place to enjoy regular free offerings, med- regular free meditations free breathwork circles on a regular basis and then when i do do 
um, contribution-based events. They're all on a sliding scale to try and make them accessible to more people. Um, but yeah, definitely catch me on social media and just get involved in, in the things that we're doing on there. Is it all at basic in, here in Surrey? Yeah. Oh, wicked. Yeah, so okay. the first retreat we did was back in October. It was in a beautiful yurt in, well, just around the corner, actually, <laughs> from here. Beautiful grounds. It was a wonderful, wonderful day. We had a, a, a great time. That was lovely. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to definitely doing more in-person retreats, but we'll be soon to set up a, a monthly membership for people to access offerings, um, have all access to offerings. But, yeah, there's lots of freebies that I offer too. So get involved if you are interested in tuning into the more spiritual side and just yeah accessing that part of you yeah all of shaw's links are in the description box below this video let us know in the comments what you thought part one's going to run now stay tuned if you've not seen it yet it's going to be a blockbuster multi-hour episode <laughs> and Shaw, would you like to try Eat some me. of the coro <laughs> dark chocolate peanuts yes i would <laughs> what is this that is one of the brownie protein bars. And what is this in the bowl? I'm going to have some of the dark chocolate peanuts. I want the dark chocolate, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're gorgeous. Mmm. I know, it's amazing. And what is this? A, a brownie bar? If you want a discount on our on Coro products, the link is in the description box. The promo code True Crime. Thanks for watching. Cheers. Let us know in the comments what you think. <laughs> Give us a hug. Mm. Oh. Brilliant. Brilliant as usual. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Chet Sandu's book is finally available worldwide on Amazon. He's one of our most viral podcast guests ever. The book is called Self Made Juice Paid, an Asian kid who became an international drug smuggling gangster. Do you want to read some of the back, Jen? Oh, yeah, go the blurb. In 1999, Chet Sandu was arrested at gunpoint in Alicante Airport for smuggling the largest quantity of illicit pharmaceutical drugs in Spanish history. Interesting. Overnight, he went from living in the shadows of the Costa del Crimes underworld to being labelled a notorious supervillain in the international press. Incarcerated alongside murderers, rapists, and terrorists in a super maximum security wing. He had to navigate a world of murderous knife fights, prison breaks, drug taking, and high stake power plays. Good bedtime read. In Self Made Use Paid, learn how a British born Asian kid with disabilities raised in a corner shop emerged as a protector of his family from racist thieves and hooligans. Be prepared to be entertained, informed and offended by Chet's no-holes-barred account of raves, drugs, bodybuilding, entering the fashion industry. Did you know that he dated Kylie Minogue and Naomi yes. Campbell? <laughs> latest interview. Working the doors and life in one of the world's deadliest places to be incarcerated. If you enjoyed Chet's podcast series with us, there's a lot more detail in the book. Check it out. Worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audiobook.